MTR Radio Network, ready for hour number two of the program. I want to thank uh, you know James Flippin for a couple minutes. Nice job um, doing his thing. Uh, but right, we're going to jump right into things right now. I'm going to welcome in former Yankees pitcher Tanyan Sturts. Tanyan, you there, buddy? It's John Pialli, Pass Ball Show. Hey, John. How are you? All right, man. Thanks for having a couple minutes to call in today. Yeah, no worries. Hey, man, uh, to start out, uh, how's, how's everything going, you know, post-playing? You still doing any playing at all, looking to get back in? Or or have you kind of uh, just gotten, you know, comfortable with, you know, not, not being around anymore? Definitely not, not looking to get back in, that's for sure. Those days are come and gone. <laughs> Very happy with playing golf and, uh, and hanging out. So it's, it's been going well. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it actually didn't go too bad, really, when you played. Uh, you, yeah, you had a, you know, a very, a very respectable career. You, you were around for twelve years. You know, you had in the time of the minor leagues. You were obviously a professional baseball player for a long time. And let's be honest. I mean, with the, you know, with the the shortcomings of being a major league baseball player, you know, I think I think you got your uh, your time's worth. Yeah, well, you know, when you leave high school to go play something, you really don't have anything else to do, so I couldn't quit. <laughs> <laughs> I had to keep going. Now, uh, you know what? I got really lucky. I got to spend a lot of time in the league, and, um, and I was very, very fortunate and very happy with the way things worked out. Yeah, now going back, you know, obviously you started out with, you know, with the Cubs, the Rangers, White Sox, and really got your first legitimate crack with the Tampa Bay Devilries. And yep. I'm going to go kind of back to 2002 for a second because, you know, unfortunately at the time, the Tampa Bay organization was not ready to win. They were doing what they could to try to put a product on the field. And you went out there, you made 33 starts. You really went out there every fifth day, did the best you could, but you weren't on a good team. Tell us a little bit about the 2002 team and really what you got out of it, being a starter, you know, for, the, for you know, 33 starts, being out there the entire season. I'll tell you, the, the, the best thing that I got out of that season was being able to go on the field every five days. That, that's really all it really came down to. Um, I really started out the season 0-14, which was uh, which was really tough. Um, I didn't really have that bad of an ERA. I didn't throw the ball that bad, but, I mean, 0-14 is 0-14. And, and um, you know, as a player, it, it's tough. It's tough when you don't have any wins and, and you keep losing every night and you lose every night. And we knew that as a team that we weren't very good. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was difficult. Those were some long years that we had in Tampa for the time that I was there. No, absolutely. And you know what? I'll compare it to one thing because a couple weeks ago I had a guy by the name of Phil Huffman on my show. Now, he pitched for the Toronto Blue Jays in 1979 when they were kind of going through a similar situation. They were only a mm -hmm. couple of years in the league at the time. And, you know, they ended up losing, I think, 109 games that season. And Phil Huffman's only year in the major leagues, he went out there, he made 32 starts, I think he was, I think he was six and eighteen for the season, and after that, his you know his psych and his you know confidence went down the chute, and he never pitched in the major leagues again. So is is there is yeah. there is there anything that goes through your head when you're doing something like that when you're going out there, giving your best, pitching for a bad team, perhaps the ERA and the numbers aren't as bad as it seems, but you know the results aren't there. What does that what does that do for your psyche and your confidence as a pitcher? It's very tough. You gotta really try and concentrate on one, two things. And the one thing I concentrated on that year was just pretty much trying to get innings. I really wanted to throw as many innings as possible. I wanted to be in the top leaders of the of the American League in throwing innings, and that's that's pretty much what I focused on, especially after the first beginning start of, of that year with it being so bad at going fourteen. So I just said, let's just try and get 
200 and something plus innings in this year, and that's that's all I really look forward to is trying to go seven, eight innings every night that I went out there. Yeah, and, it, and, and actually, then, you you averaged for the season over six innings a start. So I mean, you, you obviously you gave the team a chance to win. You know, by the you know the way numbers look. You know, if you're pitching six innings a start, you're giving the team a chance to win. Yeah, well, also remember it's Tampa. We didn't have a bullpen either. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, we lost we lost ninety something games every year those years. So it was it was difficult. It was it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to get on the plane after games, losing three out of four in every city, uh, or getting swept and or getting no no hit. We got no hit that year in Boston, and, and you know it was, it was tough. It was a really tough year. Now, now you actually move on. You obviously get a chance to play for a better team your last couple of years with the New York Yankees. Tell us a little bit about your time in New York and really, you know, really how you felt going from a team like Tampa and even a Toronto team that was okay but wasn't really, you know, playoff caliber to the world-class New York Yankees who are in the postseason every year. They got four World Series championships at the time. They're, they're winning med pennants. What, tell us a little bit about your time with the New York Yankees. Well, let me tell you, when I went to New York, First of all, you said it was a little bit better team. I mean, it's not even comparable. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, just to come to New York and to finally see what Major League Baseball really was. I mean, it, to be honest with you, that's what it's all about is, is, is the way that the Yankee organization is. is I mean, that's Major League Baseball. It's first class all the way around. And then uh, the attitude in the in the dugout and in the in the in the clubhouse is the same thing. And it was first class. They know that they're going to go out and win. And it was and it was a different thing for me to experience. But it's very easy to get sucked into that. So um, I mean, it was great. I, I can't. Uh, that was the best time of my life that I spent there. I had the best time playing the game because actually we did win. Almost every night, and uh, and the guys on the team and the attitude was that we were going to win every night. And it was a lot different coming from those other organizations. Yeah, and, and honestly, playing for Tampa, you know, like you did. I mean, you obviously get to see the best of both worlds. And one one thing, yeah. I, one thing I do remember at the time, and you know, baseball has become a game that's different from what it was in the fifties and sixties and even the seventies. There was a lot of animosity from team to team, and it doesn't really exist so much now. But around the time that you were pitching. It seemed like the Yankees Red Sox rivalry was kind of heating back up. Um, let, let us let us know a little bit about your perspective of what you saw and what was there really a uh, rekindling to the rivalry between the Yankees and the Red Sox at that time? I, I think I think there was. I mean, because it's the fans that that make it that way, the fans that make it that way. But uh, at that time, you know, they were they were always. The, you know, the second-place team that was always trying to catch us. So I think that made it a little bit more of a rivalry. Also, now it's a little bit different with Tampa in there. But, um, you know, it was always Boston, New York, who was going to come out, and pretty much whoever came out of our division had a really good shot of going to the World Series all those years. Exactly. So, you know, it really wasn't, you know, you weren't worried, worried, worried about the West. You weren't worried about, you know, the Central. So it was really the East. So that I think that's why the Boston-New York thing really – Came came to head again, also because you know they they ended up having a lot of big names while we had a lot of big names too during those times. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, man. And uh, and honestly, I think at that time you you and both the Yankees and the Red Sox, I think were as balanced between the two of them as they've been. I think the Yankees had the advantage before, and a little bit after that, I think the the Red Sox got the advantage for a couple of years. I think it's swung back the other way now, but 
I, I do I, too. I agree. Yeah, right. I yeah. I think Boston just got a little bit older. I mean, they have, they have the guys there in their time now. They're just a little bit older, where the Yankees kind of switched through a little bit. Yeah. Now going back to the, uh, you got a chance to pitch in the postseason a little bit in 2004, 2005. Tell us a little bit about your experience there. You know, was it that different of a feeling? You know, pitching in the playoffs for the first time, or could it have been just business as usual? No, are you kidding me? It's amazing. I wish I wish everybody could experience one day on the field for a playoff game. I wish it, it's not like being in the stand. It's not like being anywhere else. If you could do one day on the field, I wish everybody could have the opportunity to do that. I mean, it, it, the the feeling and the attitude and the buzz around the stadium is just different than any other game that there is. Especially when we did all the stuff with Boston. I mean, that was I mean. It, you know, people at the ballpark at noon already for a seven o'clock game is a little crazy. Two, three thousand people standing outside. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's playoff is completely different. It turns and, and everyone else turns it up a notch too. And the best person that turns it up a notch, of course, is, is Jeter. And uh, there's nobody like him. No, exactly, man. I I, I agree with you 100 percent on it, dude. There's nobody like Derek Jeter when it comes to just being just modest and. He he's the same all the time, you know. It doesn't really it doesn't really matter whether you know the game the game is on the line or there's you know confrontations going on, you know, in in the stadium or something. Nothing affects him. He's the same balance Nothing. I think all all the whole way through. We went to dinner in Cleveland one night. I'll tell you this little quick story. It's me, Bernie Williams, Derek Jeter, and Jorge Posada, and we're sitting at dinner in Cleveland. I think we were maybe I don't know ten games back, and it was getting late in the season. And I said, dude, what are we doing? It's my first year. I said, we got to go. And he goes, don't worry about it. We'll catch him. And I think we beat him on the last day of the season that year. To yeah, win. I think so. Right? Was that 04 or 05, maybe one of those two years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, we, yeah, but, yeah, but he wasn't even worried about it. He wasn't even worried about it. We only had like maybe a month or two left in the season. He's like, I will catch him. <laughs> and I was like, this is crazy, you know? Yeah. Here I come from a, from a team that loses 90 games a year. We can't even, we're trying to win one game out of the series, and he's telling me we'll catch up in 10 games behind. Yeah, so, yeah it had, it had a big that, that's, that's the attitude, and that's the attitude that they just bring with them, and, it, and everyone just kind of, you know, follows into their footsteps. Nah, no, no question about it, man. I was going to ask you one quick question before I let you go. The, the game as it is now, have you noticed a big difference in the way the game has changed in 2012? From the way it was when you played, you know, in the early part of two thousands. Um, I think it's changed. I think I think I think the game has changed. I, um, I don't know whether it's changed for the better or it's changed for the worse, but I I, I can see that it's changed. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I agree, man. For for us, I think we we played the game a little bit, maybe a little bit harder, and it meant a little bit more. And I think now they just try to get through the season and see what happens. Yeah, now you throw in the extra wild card in each league. Now you don't have to you don't have to be at that elite level to make the playoffs. I know it's right. I know you're playing the one game between the two wild card teams, which is tough. But you know your chance to play postseason baseball increases. So you got a team exactly. that you know just like last year when the Red Sox and the Braves you know missed out by a game, those teams will both be in the playoffs and still have another chance. So I think right. I think that does something for you know the morale as far as you know really maybe maybe feeling the the uh, urgency to uh, you know to win every game to be at the top level you know teams feel like they can lose you know seventy seventy five games maybe even eighty 
and still have still a chance have a to get to the playoffs. Yeah, and still have a chance to do it. And once you get in the playoffs, uh, anything can happen. I mean, yeah. you see that in every sport. All it is is getting to the dance. You get to the dance and anything can happen. Yeah, I mean, you're talking, you Especially know, with five-game series, a one-game playoff, a five-game series. Five-game series, all you need to do is get two pitchers hot. It's game over. Oh, exactly. And you were talking about, you know, a five-game series. Now you go to one game. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they're, you know, you could have a team that makes the playoffs winning 90 games. The other team, you know, wins 82 and gets it on the last day of the season. And that team has just as much of a chance. Maybe they have the better yeah. – maybe they put the better starting pitcher out there. Maybe exactly they got a couple right. guys well, that, that guy has a that guy has a great day that night. Yeah. That guy, you know? Yeah. And you just never know. Once you throw, the, once you throw those gloves out on the field, you, have, you really you have no idea. You know, whoever's hot at the time is pretty much what's going to take it. Yeah, absolutely, man. Listen, I want to thank you for having some time today, Tanya. And listen, I hope I hope you know everything goes well with you. Wish you the best, and hopefully, I can get you on the show sometime again in the future. Anytime, guys. Thank you so much. And no problem, man. Thanks. That was. Uh, yeah, hey, take care, man. That was Tanya Sturts, former pitcher for the Yankees. Pitched a little bit with Tampa Bay. I think we hit on a lot of interesting subjects. You know, it really wasn't just ever any one thing. I think talking about his experience in Tampa Bay was just as important as talking about, you know, really what happened with the Yankees because you won't go from one extreme to another. You're on a team that absolutely isn't good at all in Tampa Bay. And they were, you know, the team going out there every year that was pretty much guaranteed to lose 100 games. And then you go to get a chance to pitch for the Yankees and a team that's in the postseason every year. He got a chance. He told you, you know, Tanya Sturz told you the experience of pitching in a postseason game is something that everybody should experience at some point in their life. And, you know, to go, I mean, was that ever happening with Tampa Bay? Not until now. I mean, Tanya Sturts, you know, wasn't going to stick around with the Rays, you know, for eight, nine years. I know they became relevant again in 2008, 2009, you know, even in, even through this season. And they're a very good team. They have as good of a chance, I think, as anybody in the, the, the American League East to make the playoffs. But it wasn't happening when he was pitching in there. It wasn't happening in 2002. You know, when he was going out there, pretty much giving everything he got. And I'll tell you, you look at a record, you know, a guy with a record of four and eighteen. Honestly, you, you think you think of you think the worst of it. And here's a guy who, like I mentioned in the interview, had a five eighteen ERA, which is understandable for losing eighteen games in a season. But he threw four complete games. Threw two hundred and twenty four innings that season. And you divide that by his thirty three starts, and that's over six innings a start. And I'm telling you that you know, for a guy that pitches six innings every start, they don't deserve to be four and eighteen. And you go back, you go back to that Tampa Bay team, and I and listen, you understand that it wasn't very good. You know, they were managed by Hal McCray. They were fifty-five and one hundred six. You know, amongst the worst in the game. And you know, let's be honest. I mean, this is a team that didn't really have a whole lot at that time. You know, their first baseman was Steve Cox. You remember who Steve Cox was? He had 254, 16 homers, 72 RBIs that year. You know, their outfield, you know, had a young guy by the name of Carl Crawford who was 20 years old, played in 63 games. He was the beginning of their hope to be able to turn the thing around. You know, Aubrey Huff was their DH, you know, hit 313, but you knew he was going to get traded over time because at age 25 at that time, you knew he wasn't going to be around for the better part of it. And, I mean, I'm, listen, I want to go through some of the guys that were playing. Toby Hall was the catcher. Brent Abernethy was playing second base. Chris Gomez, remember him? 
one-time utility player, was their starting shortstop. Jared Sandberg was playing most of the games at third base. You know, talked about Crawford. Ben Grieve, remember him? Randy Wynn. You know, these were guys that, you know, yeah, they were entering the prime of their career. But, you know, when they were counted on to have to be the best player on a team, it just wasn't happening. You know, they had, they had high-priced slugger Greg Vaughn in there to try to sell a couple tickets. You know what he did that season? He hit 163 with eight homers and 29 RBIs. So, you know, you're looking at a team that really wasn't – really didn't have much of a chance. Sturts was their ace. He was their number one guy. You know, it was 224 innings, faced 1,008 batters. You know, you had guys like Joe Kennedy – Paul Wilson made 30 starts, Ryan Roop, Victor Zambrano, who was kind of a combo between a reliever and a starter that year. And, yeah, if you got in the ninth inning with a lead, you know who's getting the ball? Esteban Yan. <laughs> I like having fun with some stuff like that because I think I think it's absolutely hilarious. You know, and, and, and listen, there's some teams that just aren't very good, and you gotta you got to embrace that. And, you know, for a guy like Tanya Sturch to go from – Four and eighteen on a terrible season to have a chance to be a reliever and an occasional spot starter on a New York Yankee team that was all world, that was all telling you what it felt like to win World Series because they've done it a bunch of times. Yeah, I get it, man, and I think that's you know, I think that's an awesome uh, you know transition in your career to be able to go through something like that. Now, once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I'm going to take a brief thirty-second break. We'll be back after this. Hey everyone, this is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android market and iPhone App Store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. Everybody's doing it. (laughs) MTR Radio. Oh, yeah, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network, ready for we're pretty much finishing up, man. We got a lot of stuff going on. I want to thank Tanya Sturz for having a couple minutes today. And uh, we're expecting Roosevelt Brown, former outfielder of the Chicago Cubs, to join us within the next couple minutes. But we're going to segue that into a little bit of talk about my blog, johnpielli.com. You actually see it has had a little more of a presence on mtrmedia.com, which is a big difference from what it, what it was before. You can definitely find all my articles there. And, you know, if you get a chance, if you're into Facebook, like the JohnPielli.com page already. I mean, if you're a baseball fan, you follow the Passball Show, you should be liking the page. I mean, I, I got something like 170 likes. I should have about 2,000 by now. But uh, going back to the blog, what I was talking about last week, I broke down MLB catchers because I think we came across a lot of situations. We talked a little bit about it with James earlier. We talked a little about it with my guest that, let's be honest, Major League catchers this year have stunk, and I and I broke it down because I was really interested in to see how bad they stunk. And obviously, you know, I was proven wrong in a couple cases where there's a couple catchers having extraordinary years. But when I was talking about you know Josh Tolley and his struggles, Josh Tolley is actually in the middle of the road when it comes to catchers this year. There's been plenty that have done better, but there's also been plenty that have done worse, including a guy who was his backup for most of the season, Mike Nickius. But I really ran into a lot of situations. I was looking at Miguel Olivo, who at the time I did this article was hitting 209, seven homers, 21 RBIs. Jose Molina, 
who was a starting catcher for the Tampa Bay Rays. 187, four homers, 16 RBIs. His backup was Jose Lobatone, 228, a homer, 12 RBIs. And then there's Russell Martin, who's hitting one night, was hitting 192. Nick Hundley, who was sent to the minor leagues, hitting 166. Ramon Hernandez, who's doing a little better since he's come off the disabled list, 219. John Buck was hitting 172 when I did this article. Giovanni Soto, at the time of his trade to the Texas Rangers, was hitting 199. Let's be honest. I mean, that's crap. You know, you're looking at Kurt Suzuki, who was hitting 228, a homer, 18 RBIs. The guy drove in over 80 runs one year, doing absolutely nothing before his trade to Washington. And then you went into the middle of the road guys, the guys that I thought were kind of, you know, third ranked and totally made that group, hitting 258, 116. Jason Castro, 254. And then uh, the other guy was the uh, Reds' Ryan Hannigan, who was hitting 273. Two homers, 13 RBIs. And then you kind of went up to the next level. The number two, what I would say, will be guys that just aren't kicking it average-wise for some reason. Guys who either had track records and were known for being big-time hitters and were just having disappointing seasons. And this, this would include guys like J.P. Arancibia, who was 242, 16 homers, 50 RBIs. Alex Avila. Remember what he did last year? Alex Avila, at the time of this article, was hitting 246, six homers, 31 RBIs. I mean, are you kidding me? I think it's a little crazy. I mean, this guy was coming off of a big year and has been an absolute disappointment, but he's still ranked as a guy who really has some potential. So other guys on this, this list, a lot of people in Boston were actually saying that Jared Saltalamacchia was having a good year. And you look at his 20 home runs and his 46 RBIs, and listen, that's getting the job done. But he was hitting 230. And that's where it comes becomes a little interesting to see that, you know, for some reason, catchers just aren't kick, aren't getting the job done average-wise. Brian McCann was hitting 236 when I wrote this article. Yeah, you got 18 home runs, 56 RBIs. Great. He handles the pitching staff perfectly. But let's be honest. The guy is not getting the job done offensively. He's a perennial 300 hitter, for God's sakes. And other guys who kind of fell into the same group. Carlos Santana of the Indians, who was hitting 236. Remember Mike Napoli, the postseason hero of a year ago for the Rangers? The guy hit 320. Yeah, he still has some power this year. But can you believe he was hitting 229? I mean, that's unheard of. And I think you put this all together, and you start to realize that catchers in general have not gotten a job done offensively this season. You go to the first group, the guys who I say have gotten a job done, and that's led by a guy who came off of a terrible injury last year, and that's Buster Posey. Buster Posey, you know, was hitting, what was he, three, I want to say 320, 330, something like that. 327, 16 homers, 69 RBIs. He pretty much picked up from where he left, left off last season when he got hurt. Miguel Montero, Chuch Ruiz, Joe Maurer, and a, and a guy, A.J. Przinsky, another guy that I think deserves a lot of credit. He was injured for a good portion of this season, and that was the guy for the uh, Kansas City Royals, and that's Salvador Perez, who I actually think is going to be a very good prospect and is probably going to be one of the cat best catchers in the game over the next, like, three, four years. And I think you add that all together, and you got some good catchers. A.J. Ellis of the Dodgers has had a decent season. You even got two guys that have been hurt 
you know, Jonathan Lucroy of Milwaukee and Wilson Ramos of Washington. And, of course, Ramos's injury forced the trade for Kurt Suzuki, and it's interesting to see how that's going to work out. But listen, catchers in Major League Baseball have not gotten the job done. And while there's obviously exceptions to the rule, like I just said, let's be honest, the catchers have not gotten the job done. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty much it. Now, now let's be honest. We're going to move into, you know, a little bit of talk about the Yankees. They, they came back. I believe they won today their game. I think the game was just ending by the time I was going on the air. But, you know, uh, we'll, uh, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit. They got their, they salvaged their split against the Detroit Tigers. I think something that they needed to do. I don't think any of the games recently or, you know, within the last couple of weeks as they've been struggling have become urgent. This is a team that had some, you know, cash in hand you know, so to speak. They could afford to play badly for a little while. But I think it had to stop at some point. I mean, it went in there, it lost the first two games in Detroit. And they needed to come back and win these next two. You know, Verlander's Verlander. I mean the guy the guy's gonna the guy can no hit you anytime. You know, anybody that throws hundred miles an hour in the eighth, ninth inning of a game needs to be recognized as far as uh, you know you know, really kind of controlling what's going on. It wasn't whether the Yankee bats were going to show up that day. It's what form of Justin Verlander was going to be able to come in that day. And that what I really, I do really think that that's pretty interesting. But listen, I think the Yankees should be happy. They got their two wins here against Detroit, who is a good team. I think still think Detroit's a playoff team. Obviously, they're going for it this year with the trades they made, getting Infante and Anibal Sanchez, and even down to Jeff Baker as an extra outfielder. You know, in addition to all the other moves that they've made, they are going for it this year. And whether they catch the White Sox or not, I still think this team can be dangerous in postseason. And I'm not going to back off of my preseason prediction. I thought the Tigers were better than the Yankees. Listen, the Yankees have out. I think I I think over the course of the full season have played better than the Detroit Tigers. But I think you know mano y mano. I still like the advantage that Detroit has with their pitching. And I think they've addressed other areas. They really have. And you throw in one wild card that I think a lot of people are going to be interested in seeing how it turns out. But there is a chance that Victor Martinez, he of his you know four-year contract that he signed before last season, can actually return to this team. And if he, and if he can, and if he does, Let's be honest, man. There, there's your full-time DH, and they have enough pitching. They really do. They really have enough pitching with Verlander and Fister and Scherzer and Porcello and Sanchez. That's five starters right there. I know their I know their bullpen is a little suspect. I can't really trust Jose Valverde in the big spot. I really can't. But I but I like this team, and I do think that the White Sox are for real. I've said this all along. I've seen some teams come along, have good starts and stuff like that. I, I've seen things working out, you know, for the White Sox. But I think they're a good team. There's a difference. There is, to me, there is a huge, huge difference between a team like the White Sox and perhaps another team that I just don't think has I have any confidence in. And, you know, where where is where is that team? Am I going to say the Baltimore Orioles? Listen, 
the Baltimore Orioles, every day they go and win another game, I believe in them a little more. You've got to be honest. I mean, you cannot go out there and, and not believe in a team that's going out there winning every game. I mean, geez, up until a couple days ago, they were just four and a half games out of the American League East. You have to have a little confidence in the Baltimore Orioles because every game they go out there and win, every game that they have, a, they have a better shot. They have a better shot than they did, you know, a couple couple weeks ago. And, you know, the Baltimore Orioles, listen, I don't think anybody would have given them a puncher's chance. Um, I, I wouldn't have given them a chance to stick around as long as they have. They were amongst the four, five, six, even seven worst teams. And I remember when I was doing my countdown at the beginning, I was doing my countdown right smack in the beginning of the season that I did, what was it, the A's and the Astros, and I could have been any, any more wrong about the A's. And I'm going to put that on hold, and I'm going to welcome former Major Leaguer Roosevelt Brown to the program. Roosevelt, John Pialy, Passball Show on PR Radio Network. Thanks for having a couple minutes today. How you doing, Joe? Hey, what's going on, man? Thanks for calling in today. I appreciate you being able to spare a minute or two. Um, first, yeah. first of all, I want to throw a uh, belated happy birthday at you, man. I, I see you just came across a birthday. Yeah, appreciate it. Hey, no, no problem, man. We're going to get right back into your playing career. I think really your best season you had was 2002 with the Cubs. Tell us a little bit about that season. I think you got the most playing time, and you really got to show a little bit, you know, a little bit, little bit of uh, – you know, on-base percentage, stuff like that. Tell us a little bit about the 2002 season with the Chicago Cubs. Well, for myself, um, it was considered a down year because I was so used to playing every day coming up in the minor leagues. And then when I get up there this season, you know, they made a couple of acquisitions with Morrison Rule And um, I was kind of fighting for a spot in left field at the time. And I was considered the everyday guy, but when we got a Lou because we needed a right-hand bat and we didn't find one at third base, they took a Lou. And I ended up being the uh, guy having to sit and watch the, the next season in 2002 and 2001 before September 11th, actually September 10th. But I consider that day, September 11, one of the worst days of my life. I mean, you know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Had, had a big game against the Cincinnati Reds and did the ESPN media stuff after the game because it was a big, it was a big televised game. And um, I was told that I was going to be the everyday left field. And the Al-Qaeda ran into the World Trade Center. It just seemed like it changed my life from that point because – at that time, in 2001, we were fighting for a playoff chase. And uh, I just won MVP of my team and the band title and stuff like that because they were setting me up and down in 2001, you know, due to lack of playing time at that time because they were considering not having me to sit on the bench and not play, you know. And um, whenever we came back, a couple people came back and got healthy. Rondell White was one of them. And uh, the organization, I guess, decided to go with the veteran and told me that I had a spot for next year and I was going to be an everyday guy the next season. And uh, it didn't quite happen that way. And it really changed my life and changed the dynamics of my career a little bit with me, having, me going to Japan 
the following season in 2003. Yeah, absolutely, man. Now, do you think that you think that you know your lack of chance to get playing time in the major leagues kind of led to you know potentially your last appearance in the major leagues being in 2002? Yeah, I, I honestly, I strongly feel that way. Yeah, no, no. Actually, I listen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you convinced me. I totally agree. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I, I strongly feel that way. I mean, over the, you know, you look at my career from 2008 and on. I think my average, my career average, was about about 3:30 per season. So my numbers were pretty astronomical over the over the uh, over that time frame, and I was just looking, waiting on an opportunity to show that at the big league level and a couple of things happened. Corey Patterson was there. He was a big prospect and he had, you know, saw all his money and and I they didn't the Cubs didn't view me as an everyday center fielder but an everyday left fielder and it didn't work out to the point where I didn't get a chance to play the position that they were grooming me to play due to um management reasons in my opinion and um it just didn't work out. I mean, you know, sometimes God does things for a reason. Or, but running planes into the building, I mean, that really just changed my life, in my opinion. Nah, I, was, I grew up, I grew up a Cubs fan, you know. Okay. So I was kind of, it was kind of disappointing that I didn't get an opportunity. You know, I had my own personal visions of possibly winning the World Series, helping the Cubs win a World Series, and all that type of stuff. So once I got over there, it really changed my outlook. And all my dream, or my vision, so to speak, to the point where I felt I was put there to do some things at the Cubs winning the World Series. And I, you know, since I've left, I mean, I've I noticed that they have Anthony Rizzo now, and he's probably the left, closest left hand bat that they have that's going to be a success since the days of really Billy Williams. Yeah, yeah. Or Henry, or Henry Rodriguez, as far as the left hand bat is concerned. Yeah, I agree, man. But um, they tried Jock Jones. They tried not Jock Jones. I'm sorry, but um, they tried Bill Bradley. They tried Fukudome. They tried a couple left hand bats, and they were never they never panned out. I think that's the thing that the Cubs have been missing over the last decade is a good left handed bat, and I think Rizzo is the kid that's going to be that for him for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I think Rizzo's going to be a heck of a player, man. I mean, the guy just has a lot of natural power. His ability to hit the ball the opposite way with the authority that he does, I think means he's going to be a guy that's going to stick around here. Hey, just back to a little bit. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience in Japan. You were there for the 2003-2004 seasons. Tell us a little bit about you know how it was playing in Japan, how you reacted to kind of just playing the same game but in a totally different region. I'm sure it's a life-changing experience kind of. Oh, yeah, it was a very eye-opener. You know, I'll tell you what, the Japanese play more fundamentally sound baseball than anybody in the world. Yeah, We play a lot of air-free baseball over there because those guys, they, they put so much of an emphasis on defense. That's why you haven't seen a bad defensive player come from Japan. And the reason why the Japanese team wears the World Baseball Classic more than not is because of their fundamentals and um it was an eye opener, you know. I never, I hit clean up most of the time, and um, I've never had a third hitter to bunt in front of me all the time. Or first base was always open. The second, second year, two thousand three, I had an American, American um, manager in Leon Lee, 
Okay. And he didn't he didn't burn in front of me much, so I got a chance to put up some good numbers. I ended up getting about 320, 30 home runs, throwing like 29 bases and stuff. So I got a, got a chance to play my game. But the following year, we ended up getting a Japanese manager because Leon filled in as the intern manager when they uh, fired the manager that was there when I first got there. So I played for three managers in, in two years over there. And um, that 2003 season, at the All-Star break, I had a, another injury. I had a back injury. I bore some hernia, some discs. In my back, and that's what pretty much zapped me from playing. That that kind of stopped me from playing and put the brakes on my playing career real quick. Now, now you do you think really the injury kind of led to the end being near for you? I mean, obviously you, yeah. you, had, you had a little chance to play for uh, Charlotte in the Chicago White Sox organization after your your trip in Japan, but you know, kind of injuries kind of took its toll. Yeah, it did. It zapped my legs, and I should have had a surgery, but I. I I heard I injured when I was with the Cubs, and I should have had the surgery then, but I didn't. And um, it came back to bite me the second year in Japan. I mean, I was having a good year, and a back injury um, got the best of me. I ended up signing with Atlanta, you know, I didn't, you know, because I felt the Japanese doctors weren't telling me what I needed to know. So I ended up signing with Atlanta and tried to get healthy, and I then and you know release them, and then I signed with the White Sox, you know, and played over there and just, you know, I just didn't, my legs, my body didn't feel the same. Because that was like my fourth time bulging my disc in my back. So my body just was never the same. And I promise you I had the surgery the first time I was at the Cubs. But, uh, you know, you live, you learn. You know what I mean? It's a business. Injury can come back and get you. But that was pretty much the only injury I really had as a player. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. Now, now, as, are you still involved in the game at all? Is there any, anything you're doing still involve yourself in the game of Major League Baseball? Um, two years ago, I was the double-A hitting instructor for the Atlanta Braves in Mississippi. Okay. And um, I had to take some time off for some personal reasons after um, after that year. I, I actually got custody of my son, so okay. he required a little bit more time than, than usual. I need to be around him more, so I kind of just – laid off a little while and this year I'm looking to return though. You know, now that he's acclimated, he's in the right path, you know, got him focused and he's following his dream. Now it's time for me to get back in the game, you know. So that's what I'm working on now. All right man, well listen, I wish you the best of luck. I thank you for having a couple minutes today. Hopefully I could get you on in the show sometime in the near future. Thanks a lot, John. Hey, take care man. Appreciate it. All right, it was uh Roosevelt Brown, former uh, outfielder for Chicago Cubs and he tells you he tells you a little story about, you know, how things kind of aren't right. You know, you got to play off teams. That, you know, I think a lot of players' success, pass or fail, have a lot more to do with <clears throat> opportunity. And you're looking at, uh, you're, you're looking at opportunity uh, as, as a chance. And now I think Roosevelt Brown, could have been a very serviceable major league outfield. He could have been an everyday player. I mean, look at some of his numbers down in AAA. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is this is something that I don't, you know, I don't agree with. I mean, you go, you get a power hitting outfielder, and Roosevelt Brown's numbers. I mean, listen, he had, you know, he had a uh, OPS of over a thousand two years in a row. This guy was hitting thirty home runs, driving in 70, 80 RBIs, you know, each season down in AAA. 
And, you know, a guy who, you know, unfortunately just did not get enough of a chance to be an everyday player in the major leagues. And that, you know, that messed things up. That held it back. That, you know, made things not work out for him. And, you know, led him to go to Japan for a couple of years. And I think, you know, you look at, you know, you look at baseball and really what it is. I mean, there's such a fine line between, you know, extreme talent and, you know, non-talent that, you know, it's only by a hair. I mean, a guy like Roosevelt Brown, who, you know, has, you know, an 1100, you know, OPS down in AAA, you know, doesn't really make it very far, not because he failed, but because he didn't get an everyday job. You know, they the Cubs went and they traded for Moises Alou because they're a legitimate playoff contender. And they would rather have the proven veteran than the younger player. Now, if Roosevelt Brown was playing for a team that I referenced before in 2002, and that's the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, if he was playing for them, he may still be playing right now. He may, he may still be a power-hitting outfielder because the Tampa Bay Devil Rays at that point were going to get a legitimate, you know, give the guy a legitimate opportunity to go out there and play every day. And that, you know, that being said, I mean, you know, that may have ruined the guy's career. And you actually, you could hear it in his voice. You could hear it in his expression, in his feelings about stuff. That, yeah, he was a little disappointed. I mean, you send him back down to the minors and, you know, the next year he's playing in Japan. And then, of course, you know, the unfortunate thing, the guy gets hurt, you know, when he comes back. And that spells the end for him. And I think, you know, listen, that's another another sad story. I think sad along the lines of Phil Huffman, who I talked to a couple weeks ago, a guy who was used and abused the one year that he was in Toronto for their purpose, for the Blue Jays' purpose, because they needed somebody to start. And then what happens the next year? He gets six innings in spring training when he's healthy. I think I was, you know, like I said the other week, that was a terrible job. That was a terrible job by the, you know, the Blue Jays in that situation. And listen, the Cubs, yeah, the Cubs are trying to end the curse. They're still trying to end the curse. You know, it's been, what, 104 years since their last World Series? I mean, that's ridiculous. Let's be honest. The fact that they haven't won in 104 years is a ridiculous, you know, atrocity. So when they have a chance to win, you can't blame them for going out there and trying to get the best players they can. Because it is a legitimate curse that you have going on here. And you cannot deny it. You cannot deny the fact that there is a curse involved with the Chicago Cubs. And if they have a chance to win the World Series, yeah, I wouldn't blame them going all in to get themselves the best players. But it goes as, a, you know, as you know, you know there, there's a detriment to a guy like Roosevelt Brown who doesn't get a chance to play in the major leagues. And I'm going to put that on hold and welcome in Manny Motor Jr. to the program. Manny, um, you know, as, uh, of course, the son of Manny Motor, the pinch hitter. Manny, John Pialli, Passball Show on PR Radio Network. Thanks for having a couple minutes today, my man. How you doing, buddy? Hey, pretty good, man. Thanks for uh, taking a couple minutes. I got, you know, I got about 10 minutes up until the hour. Uh, can you tell us, first of all, a little bit about the uh, Motor Baseball Clinic and everything you do with that, with the personal training and everything? Yeah, basically, Mono Basil Clinic, what I've done, I've uh, taken all the experience that I had playing ball and, of course, growing up around my dad in the stadiums. And uh, we basically do baseball lessons for the kids. At the same time, we do uh, 
personal training, I was able to get certified here in Arizona. And we uh, trained the kids, showing them how to actually become an athlete all the way. It's not only just having the talent, but teaching them at an early age that you have to be dedicated to be able to be a, a successful athlete, not only on the physical level, just swinging the bat or throwing the ball, but pretty much everything, mental makeup and all of that. No, absolutely, man. Now, how much uh, does your uh, does your father have any influence in the camp at all? Is he kind of there doing it with you, or is this uh, this your own operation here? It's my own operation, but what I do during the off season, uh, you know, he comes up here and uh, hangs out with me and shares with the kids, and we try to somehow make it where it's fun for the kids, networking, bringing ball players. Uh, a way of inspiring the kids basically to 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 be motivated. You know, besides being at home playing a Nintendo Wii or an Xbox. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. But we good. try to blend it in. We do interviews too, which I post on Facebook and you know, and our Twitter pages, just to keep the kids involved in everything, so they understand the game. You know, from positioning yourself on a batter who's fast to, you know, to knowing the right field walker, the right fielder, what to look for, check out the walls, and a lot of little details. We we try to teach them everything that we basically, my dad and my family have learned of the game anywhere from, you know, from being in kindergarten or playing peewee ball to the major leagues. Yeah, listen, a lot, a lot of good stuff going on with that. And one one point that I kind of think of, you know, you see the generation has kind of gravitated towards the, you know, sitting there on the Wii and the Xbox and playing the video games as opposed to being more active. And really, I mean, I can remember when I was a kid, I was playing sports all the time, you know, it was you know, I don't think the generation had gone so much into the video games. But right now, I mean, sometimes you have a hard time picking a kid out of a house and getting him out there to see a little fresh air, let alone, <laughs> let alone be well, athletic. Well, that's a good point that you make because also we have to look at ourselves. Sometimes we get too caught up in the computer or doing, you know, social networking or emailing somebody. And But, yeah, the number one thing as parents is our job to get the kids out there. I mean, my kid loves video games, and, you know, we have to sometimes as a parent, you know, you can't be too big key to to help them with self-confidence on and off the field basically for life and you just teach them all those little things you know adversity one thing that we pride ourselves in the clinic is teaching the kids adversity how to deal with the mental you know when they're jogging and they're laying out they're getting tired how the mind starts playing games on you and you just got to beat it and dig deep so the mental part is huge getting the kids out of the house and letting them know and you know they experiment with sports that they didn't think they were able to do and it's better for them to learn all this stuff at an early age that they can do it so when they become older life doesn't hit them you know hard and and i think that's so very important now i agree 100 percent, man hey going back to uh you know your your younger life as you were growing up uh tell us a little bit about how it was being you know manny moda's son and looking up to him as a father as as the father and you know, a professional baseball player. Tell us a little bit about how that life was about. Man, it was so cool because, you know, you saw every facet of the game from, you know, being around athletes, celebrities, and growing up around, you know, in the clubhouse, you know, around Oral Hershiser and Steve Garvey and Ron Say, you know, and Tommy Lasorda, uh, who I'm blessed to be uh, his godson. But uh, that's awesome. it's cool. It's funny how you bring that up because today I was thinking about Steve Garvey and, and he sent me a friend request on Facebook. And, <laughs> you know, there are certain guys that you remember that respected you in the clubhouse, whether you were 30 years old or 10. And Steve Garvey, all her shy, so those guys were class. And I just sent them a message just to let them know the impact he's 
had on me. I'm 41 today, and to this day, I still think the way he treated me with respect. So if any of that can do that to a kid, I mean, it can make a difference. Just this gesture is something that, you know, you carry on forever. But it was great growing up. I mean, growing up around my dad, he was uh, he's, he's a class act. You know, he's so disciplined. I look at it, and I'm like, God, he's, he's blessed. He's been with the Dodgers for, what, 42 years? Yeah. I mean, as many changes of managers and coaches, and he's still there. So that's that's the testament of his discipline and, most importantly, being humble and, 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 and have a good attitude and being a good mentor to, to all the players there. I mean, I always say that he's Tyler shouldn't be coach. He should be like the psychologist of the Dodgers. So because <laughs> every time a player gets out of hand or gets in trouble or, or, or tries to, you know, Especially us, the Latin players, who we are a little bit more impulsive because of our culture. He, he's the mediator, so I call him the psychologist of the Dodgers. But it was great. It's it's always been great. Up to this day, I go to spring training. I'm somewhat involved in the game. I'm trying to get back scouting or coaching, and I go on spring training, look at the drills, and just watch. You know how the how everything changed from the older athletes to the new athletes of now that are crazily strong. You know, you see guys hitting. With 160 pounds and driving 100 runs in. Hey, listen, as, as you get to that, because it, it actually, you know, every now and then you say something, somebody says something, and it just kind of strikes something in your head. What do you think about the, the extensive weight training that's involved in the game now as opposed to even 25, 30 years ago? Well, it's awesome. I love it. I mean, I train myself. I mean, if, and I think many times I wish I knew all these drills when I played yeah. ball. <laughs> um, it's, it's, good i mean it's technology and, and the weight training that people know the body better and a part of it is also these athletes are by the time in high school they already you know they have some sort of organized training whether it's at the school i mean they're you know power a lot of power unfortunately is money and, and you know in, in a lot of the countries and not in a bad way but you know everybody wants to make the million dollars in base when they just you know use to to teach themselves about you know straining your core you know back speed and so on but it, it's amazing to see these guys now i mean like i said with 170 pounds hitting 40 home runs you know back then uh, like i talked to pete guerrero former dodger yeah. uh i interviewed him last week and i asked him dude what did you do did you do any weight? He said, no, I didn't do any of it. He said, how do you like any of it? <laughs> he said, in fact, I only went to spring training because it was mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But he, you know, he, yeah, those guys, you know, things change. You just got to adjust to your generation, you know, and, and that's the way it was back then. I mean, when I played 92, 93, 94 with the Astros, they were just starting to incorporate weight training because most of the teams still thought that was – you know, you get too tight, you know, it's not good for you. So, but I like it. I think it's amazing. It's amazing, the body. It, it really amazes me how the body works. Yeah, exactly, man. And back, you know, back to, you know, your, you know, what, what was of your playing career. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your experience, your efforts to get to the major leagues and, you know, everything that happened with that. Well, I was uh, drafted in 1991 out of Fullerton. I was a 44th pick in the draft. Top a uh, 5'2 player, uh, very talented, uh, young, you know, at an age where we all hit that bulletproof age between 20 and 24 where you think you know everything and yeah. you learn. And, and uh, I was in the big league roster, 40 men for four years with the Astros and the Phillies. Uh, I did have a lot of injuries. Uh, touching that point, if I knew uh, those workout exercises back then, I would have had a healthier uh, 
career, then I retired in 97. You know, I, I just was prone to injuries. And once that happens, I mean, you will get tagged, no matter if you, you know, if you got hurt playing hard or diving after a ball. Once you get labeled as an injury-prone player, it's, it's harder to, to get together with a team. And I just had to somewhat accept it and, and move on. And, but I'm grateful to be uh, around the game since I was little. As I talked to you earlier about you know being in the clubhouse. And yeah. To this day, I'm still around talking to some of the players, some of the guys you know, that come meet here. And it's just great to be around a, such a great uh, uh, father. And uh, we're just blessed to be have the motor name on us. No, absolutely, man. Now, now, listen, man. Obviously, you're you're getting involved with a lot of good stuff now. So I wish you the the best to continued success with your uh, with with the camps and everything. And you know, hopefully, I can get to speak to you again sometime in the near future, man. I appreciate you having a couple minutes today. Definitely. Thank you so much. I'm sorry I was a little late. I was assuming I was uh, my I'm in Arizona. Okay. So I was gonna call you for about nine forty-five your time. Ah, my bad. So thank you, Church. I appreciate you so much, and thank you. Uh, and good luck to you and uh, the rest of your family. All right, you too, man. I hope we stay in touch. Yeah, good stuff. Bye bye. Right, take care. And that was uh, Manny Mota Jr. You know, definitely part of a great show today. I want to thank Tanyan Sturts. I want to thank Roosevelt Brown, James Flippin, and of course my daughter Alexis for joining me in the program today. We're gonna get back to you next week with uh, another exciting show. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Yeah, hit up JohnPielli.com. Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't... So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, 6-1 to one to the range. For the Indians, one run on, let's see, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past. I'm talking about the history. I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he's out. Well, he's out. Yes, Sell the team.